Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. With us, Julia Coronado, we want to pause here before we get to GDP and the guesstimates of it. With the photo of the week last week for me, and frankly, is the photo of International Women's Day, if you just assume that all of accomplishment of men and women is about ability and smarts, what a wonderful photo of Chair Yellen, Catherine Mann, Julia Coronado, and others assembled. I believe Ellen Zentner yep. I saw there from Morgan Ellen Stanley Zentner, as well. Yep. Tell us about the energy in the room and tell us what this meeting of the smartest minds of women economics, what it meant for the young kids yeah. that were invited there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it was it was a celebration of Janet Yellen and her accomplishments. We wanted to say thank you to her. And I think for everybody in that room, she has been such a powerful figure uh, yeah. for us, a powerful inspiration. Uh, and it was a really warm, warm environment. Lots of lots of love in that room. Tell us where we're going to be in five years or 10 years. The loneliness of Chair Yellen, the loneliness of Kathy Mann at MIT a million years ago. Right. Ellen Zetner all by herself at Nomura on her way to the excellence at Morgan Stanley. And right. what you've accomplished mm -hmm. with, particularly with your analysis of GDP, it was lonely. It's yeah. less lonely now. Where are we it in ten years? It is less lonely. I mean, I, I I hope we're. I hope it's even less lonelier. I hope it's not a. It doesn't make you unique to be a, a woman chief economist mm -hmm. in in ten years. I certainly hope that to be true. Um, and I think that there's a lot of people, both men and women, who are focused on changing right. that. Uh, so 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 I, I'm optimistic for that. And John, John, the, yeah. the path breaking here. We forget it, and it's someone that everyone in economics knows. Was that absolute courage of Joan Robinson in London and in England. Uh, hugely contentious economics debates coming out of World War II. I think there's also just a real awareness from a business perspective that actually it brings huge amounts of benefits to have diversity. I yeah. can share you an anecdote. I can't name the names, but I know an individual that was an executive at a, a large apparel brand here in the United States. Mm -hmm. And the board were worried about female apparel sales. And and guess what? The board was made up of all male. Yeah. They couldn't relate <laughs> to women. Right. And it's a problem the retailers have had that the board is so dominated by say, white males, right. they can't relate to, to most of the people that are actually selling product too. Exactly. And therefore, the company very quickly becomes stale. And Julia, that's the point I think is yes. more important absolutely. now. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a real you awareness. You put your finger right on A real awareness that. of the benefits, not about the yes. sake of having numbers it's for the sake of numbers. It's not about fairness. It's about getting things right. And yeah. that is true in the retail industry. And that's also true in the finance industry. Are you going to get the world right? In economics, are you going to forecast the world right? If you yeah. don't have half of the population represented, and 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 so right. representation matters not just to fairness, but to getting things well, right. Let's get it right right now. Does President Trump have it right that we can sustain three percent, make America great again GDP? I, I don't think that we can sustain 3% GDP. I think that we are going to have a very good year. I think that we are going to grow above trend. But I think that, you know, at least the way we economists would look at things when you do fiscal stimulus at full employment, 
what happens? Do we even have the workers to push GDP? Um, where we saw in the beige book yesterday, the labor market's very tight. It's very hard to find the workers to generate additional growth, even to sustain the strong growth that we have. So what happens is, and we've seen this in Q1 GDP numbers, the trade, we start sourcing that growth abroad. Imports are rising. The trade deficit is actually quite ironically okay. this rising. Is, this yes. goes, but John, this goes right into the tariff debate today, right. which is if there's a dearth of exports, the other side of that, as you correctly state, is we're sourcing imports. Right. We're sourcing imports. We're sourcing. And, and you know, when you do CapEx, actually, a lot of the CapEx inputs are coming from abroad. Uh, so we're going to trade is going to subtract maybe even up to a percentage point off Q1 GDP uh, because we are seeing strong demand and we have to source it abroad. Uh, and, and what will the tariffs do to all of this? Um, well, that has the potential to crowd things out a bit, create a bit of inflation, crowd out some of the investment. Uh, Are we going to sustain a 1% decline in GDP looking at exports and imports? That's a that's no, a loaded question. It, it, yeah. I mean, look, trade is very volatile. And, and Q1 is, that's one of the areas that typically features in the weak Q1 pattern that we've had. So yeah. you don't want to extrapolate from that. But I the, think- the Blame the, the weather Q1, Julia? No, no, no. It's not weather. <laughs> it's not weather. It's statistical. It's season, residual seasonality. There you go. Uh, but yeah. um, I, I think- in general, for the year as a whole, we should look right. for trade to be a bigger drag because of stronger imports right. uh, and sourcing some of the uh, demand yeah. that we need from abroad. Julia Coronado, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Julia Coronado and Abby Joseph Cohen, we really wanted to put them together. We bring in Peter Chatwell, shall we? Mizuho International Head of European Rate Strategy and Jeffrey Yu, UBS Private Banking Head at UK Investment Office, UBS Private Banking. He joins us right now. Um, Jeff, let's begin with you, sir. As you look at the forward guidance from the ECB, it's a delicate shift that they've talked about for a year, but they've dropped that pledge. Your thoughts? Um, absolutely. Um, but also, I think there'll be many in the market who are saying, look, guys, uh, what took you so long, right? So uh, <laughs> um, it's clearly um, that uh, some people are not a position for this. Um, I think the ECB will still, you know, take it easy. Let's see what Draghi has to say. They're going to be keen on trying to um, avoid uh, any type of a um, tantrum up ahead. But so far, looks like markets are taking this well. Peter Chatwell, as Jeff points out, what did take so long? They've been talking about it for about 12 months. I guess it's relative to expectations. People just did not expect it to happen today. Did you? We, we were not expecting this to go uh, at this point. Uh, the only reason that we would expect to, that it could go here is if uh, the ECB is also uh, ready to, to make a change to some of their forward guidance on yeah. the timing and the pace of interest rate hikes. So that's the way that this, uh, as long as they're clear about this and they prevent the market from, uh, from pricing imminent rate hikes, then this won't turn into something more significant that leads to wider spreads. Right. Um, but just having a, a lower bund price, a higher bund yield, right. uh, is not the end of the world. I'm going to frame here off the Bloomberg terminal the sequence of headlines that I have out. I'll put that out on social for all of Bloomberg Radio. And Jeff, you, what it is is just the tone of 9, 10, 11 headlines. It reminds me of Mark Carney 10, 12 months ago saying, you know, we have to wait until inflation goes up. Did Mr. Draghi blink this morning? 
Um, I wouldn't say he's unblinking, but it's just more, you know, realizing that some things, you know, need to change at this point. And uh, also uh, knowing that the market probably is in a better position to actually accept change at this point. So, you know, it is really that dynamic is in place. Um, And again, you know, if the markets take it well, uh, even with further normalization uh, prospects up ahead, uh, then he'll be happy with the results. This is a real baby step, though, Jeff. There'll be some listeners Mm -hmm. that are thinking, what are we getting excited about? What is this all about? And as you said, Jeff, about time. But does this set us up for the removal of QE before the end of this year? Uh um, so uh, I think he is you know, gradually laying the framework um, to actually push everyone in that direction, right? But uh, so, yes, you know, setting uh, it up, that is um, a clear uh, intent, but he's going to be looking at the reaction at the same time and also bearing in mind financial conditions. Euro's higher on this. Yeah. He doesn't want to you know, force it all the way up to 130 either in the short term. Right. Peter Chetwell, esoteric for our U.S. audience, but let's go there. Is the 10-year German yield near a technical resistance where higher yields really denotes a breakout? I think it's important. I mean, yes, if you look at a a chart, uh, you might get concerned that they could go a lot higher from here. But um, you've got to think about the implication that that would have on financial conditions for the euro area. And when when you're taking away, on the one hand, saying that QE is not going to be increased, then I think the ECB is likely to also give something back which is to try and reinforce uh, and push out some of the rate hike expectations. So this is why I think if Bundyu's going up to 70, 75 basis points, then it would probably still be viewed as a buying opportunity by investors. So, Jeff, get me set up for the news conference that comes in about 30, 40 minutes' time with ECB President Mario Draghi. Is it a hawkish shift at 7.45 Eastern time and then a, uh, a dovish news conference 45 minutes later? Um, I think uh, the best news conferences, you know, will be ones uh, where euro dollar is actually trading exactly the same level as when the conference ends compared to where the conference started. <laughs> so markets are now pricing in him to be relatively yeah, hawkish as long as he actually doesn't push things above that. I think he'll be fine with it. Yeah. Jeff, what's so important here to me is the tone yeah. of the set of headlines. I just put out mm-hmm. my screen. They're all different. John Farrell's looks different than mine of ECB mm-hmm. headlines and the colors. And, and, and Jeff, yeah. I just headline to headline to headline. Mm-hmm. They're saying we're going to wait. Explain why they're waiting for more information. Is there just no inflation out there or is it something else? There are inflation expectations, as always, um, but they need to be anchored, right? So Draghi has always expressed this view. So you know, let's see how the uh, break-evens are move as well. Um, but he needs evidence that inflation expectations are now anchored, that they can be sustained for a period of time, and then they will be fully ready. So again, baby steps in that direction, but he needs more evidence that those expectations are here to stay. I, I mean, John Farrell, an extended period uh, waiting, running until inflation path has sustainably adjusted. Yeah, the, the that language, kind of tone. That, that, that kind of tone is still dovish as far as I'm Agreed. concerned. Agreed, yes. And, and Peter Chatwell, this is still a dovish European Central Bank under President Mario Draghi. They are not in a rush to remove accommodation, regardless of this pickup we've seen over the last year for the general economy. I think they're not in a rush to remove accommodation, but the market needs reassurance. And see, a lot of these these headlines that you're talking about, uh, they're still pretty wishy-washy. So the market doesn't really know what an, how long an extended period is. The market doesn't know how quickly rates will go up. Yeah. And so these are the points that the ECB needs to make much more transparent in their forward guidance or in the press conference going forward 
to prevent there from being what they what they call an unwarranted tightening of monetary conditions. But hold on a minute, Jeff. I, I remember the Federal Reserve using exactly the same language that the uh, that rates wouldn't rise until an extended period of time. Are they just taking mm-hmm. a leaf out of the Federal Reserve's forward guidance playbook from several mm-hmm. years ago? Well, I think if you look at how the Fed handled rate hikes last year, you know, when there was sort of a shift, especially around the March meeting, from not much being priced to suddenly a lot being priced for the market absorbed it well, that's a very good playbook to follow. But again, going back to that sustained period, we've only seen inflation data surprise the upside since around like June last year. So again, that's barely a year, barely nine months at this point. They need a bit more time to see this through. And the problem, Tom, that the ECB is going to have, an extended period of time for Mario Draghi is going to be a very different extended period of time for Jens Weidmann. And I imagine the governing council is going to be a lot more fragile and broken up, divided as we approach year end. This has been wonderful. Jeffrey, you, Peter Chatwell, away from their uh, clients today. We greatly appreciate you being with us with these ECB announcements. Joining us now, uh, a really wonderful guest, Isaac Boltanski is with Compass Point, and he is knee-deep in the minutiae of policy in Washington, and particularly financial policy, and and joins us now with uh, comments that maybe most of us can understand. Um, Isaac, I'm going to frame this for the politically accessible. Is the senator from Massachusetts against the known world? Uh, For cable TV, it's great to have Senator Warren on. She always creates emotion, whether you agree or disagree with her. I get that. But is is that as simple as financial regulation is? Dodd-Frank, Senator Warren, or is there a greater complexity to what's going on right now? You know, I think you've really hit on something there. The, the issue at hand is this regulatory relief bill for banks. And the proponents for this bill argue that it's going to usher in a new wave of lending and and economic growth. The opponents, such as Senator Warren, suggest that it's going to unleash this sort of Mad Max hellscape on the lending environment and and, and harken back to the predatory lending days of, uh, of a decade plus ago. As with almost everything in D.C., and surely everything in the financial regulatory regime, the truth is far more nuanced. And the, uh, the bill that's in question here is honestly a very targeted, narrow, measured bill that would almost exclusively benefit the country's smallest banks. And generally there, I'm speaking about banks below $10 billion. Yes, of course, there are examples of larger banks uh, having benefits in this bill as well. Um, it raises the uh, the CIFI or CCAR threshold from $50 billion to $250 billion over time, which will provide some modicum of relief for those banks. And it has a custodian bank carve-out, which should help State Street and Bank of New York, Mellon, Northern Trust. But on balance, this bill is skewed towards benefiting smaller banks. But you wouldn't know that from the rhetoric. And the rhetoric here, I think, is, is red hot in part because we're coming up on 10 years from the crisis, but also because there are 17 Democrats right now in the Senate who are supporting this bill. And so it's the first time that yeah. we've actually seen a bipartisan push to alter the rules. Yeah, and that's what's different. 
I can't say, John Farrell, enough how unusual that is. Yeah. Extraordinarily unusual. Isaac, what do you make of the rhetoric then? Why do we still have this? And it can't just be because of the financial crisis that's gone by. Do people think seriously that the regulatory regime that we have right now is good? I think that I think that the inherent complexity of financial policy makes it easier for hyperbole on both sides, and that's why what I think that we're seeing firsthand here. Um, the explaining the supplementary leverage ratio and its impact to capital management uh, is is not exactly a political soundbite, but hitting uh, the uh, bank bill for rolling back Dodd Frank regulations is something that. Some senators are actually fundraising on yeah. right now. You know, I look, Isaac, and, and I just did this, folks, and I, I, you know, I knew where I was going, but not really. J.P. Morgan operating income, thirty-six billion on its way to forty-five billion. A big bank, PNC Financial of Pittsburgh, operating income seven billion. So it's Isaac forty-five is compared to seven, and the answer is that's a big. That's a comparison of a super bank to a big, big, big regional bank. Are we treating all our banks too much the same within our legislation, our regulation, within the Washington Ballet? It's something where, yes, the the simple and unquestionable answer is yes. And I think that um, regulation tends to benefit scale players. They have the capital and the personnel necessary to build these systems. Where's the president so, on that? Does he want to help the small banks and the the mere mortal regional banks? Yes, I think there is a bias. And thus far, all we've really seen is the president so far. He met with the smallest bankers a few months ago and met with the credit unions a few weeks ago. So we haven't seen him decide to meet with the larger players yet. But yes, I think that there is an undeniable bias in D.C. on both sides of the aisle to help smaller banks. The question here is just how do you define that and yeah. what is the legislative vehicle that carries that? I see. This has been the uh, the policy push that's happened in the background throughout the last week. Front and center has been issues around trade. Your thoughts on where this is going and whether we have actually got an administration that ultimately is together on the same page and this is a negotiation tactic that they start at the extreme and then they come in. Is that what this is? It appears that once again, that framework is playing true with the with the signals that there's a softening on the country exemptions for Canada and Mexico as it relates to the tariffs. I am still unsure if that is strategy or uh, or bending to the broader pressure. It was striking to see how unified both parties were yeah. in their opposition, in particular because Republicans want to run on the economic benefits of the tax cut. And there is a real concern that these tariffs would eat into those benefits. And so you can always count on actors in D.C. Yeah. Uh, looking for their own self-interest. Isaac Boltanski, thank you so much for the Compass Point today. An update there on bipartisan banking legislation. I can't remember when the last time I said this. I'm thrilled to have Cynthia Coons with us with Bloomberg News who has been more than patient over the time 
over the years and following the drug-slash-pharmaceutical business. Today's theme, I believe, is the distribution of the pharmaceuticals. Cynthia Coons, what does Express Scripts actually do? Well, this is this takes a long time to explain, so I'll try to keep it quick. Good. But basically, <clears throat> what Express Scripts does essentially is manage the drug benefit plans as they're used for insurers and payers to determine what drugs patients actually pay and how much we pay. So Express Scripts is a, is a, is a line in the middle. They're considered a middleman. And what they do is they negotiate the drug prices with the actual manufacturers and they make determinations about what is a preferred drug, yeah. first tier, <clears throat> second tier. So your copay is dependent on decisions a lot of times made by Express Scripts. And the reason this gets a little bit tricky is primarily because of exclusivity contracts. And so drug makers, really powerful drug makers, can negotiate exclusivity contracts and get preferred status on these formularies. And other drugs that even might clinically be considered better alternatives aren't necessarily getting covered. And all of this is happening through a system which is known as rebating, and drug makers are basically able to give rebates to express scripts. I I ran into a physician the other day that said, we've basically hit a tipping point of American fraud in pricing of drugs. Do you know how profitable express scripts is by looking at their accounting statements? Or is it, is it almost to the point where there's cash flows or agreements or exclusivities that we don't observe? It's really hard to know. So it's easy to see, okay, these are their profits and what they report, exactly. margins, et cetera. But really what everyone wants is a little bit of a line of sight into the agreements that Agreed. are and how much and you don't these know drug that. makers are paying for access. And we can't see that. And, and right. there are commercial concerns that these guys have long cited as to why they don't make that clear. So their, their negotiations with a big employer like yeah. – like J.P. Morgan are obviously going to be different than a small employer in that sort of scale and so on. But where it gets really tricky is you have drugs that might be clinically superior and they're fighting or they're even equivalent um, and they're fighting to get onto formularies and and companies are saying they can't get access and they they think this is anti-competitive. So we've seen suits along those lines and that's where it raises the the role they play. Did they do this deal because of Jeff Bezos? Is this just about Amazon and everybody's Mm -hmm. trying to get out in front of Jeff Bezos running a, uh, you know, a bulldozer through the industry? I I mean, that's a very astute observation and it very well may have played into the thinking of what can we do now um, from Cigna's perspective? How do we necessarily become something that's more valuable than a standalone insurer? And so that's not necessarily, that's a very... You know, that's a very smart thought. It's just very hard to know what what Amazon is going to do and how they're going to do it. And I think Amazon's impact, yes, it could uh, disintermediate the, the PBMs in the system, but they also will have a very big impact on drugs and drug pricing. And so there's a whole other dimension to that. So getting ahead of Amazon... Yes, that's one way of thinking about it. Uh, but we're still in very early innings of knowing what Amazon is going to do and how they're going to disrupt this part of the supply chain. There healthcare. is a huge dance going on at the moment, Cynthia, that we should point out. Signal and Anthem were meant to get together. It didn't happen. Anthem mm-hmm. drop Express Scripts at the same time. Anthem go mm-hmm. alone. So essentially you're left with these two that wanted a dance partner and haven't got one and they need to get bigger. Is that what needs to happen in this space at the moment? Just get bigger and find a dance partner? Well, it's certainly, it's sort of like because that's happening, it's going to continue to happen. I find that these sorts of things become once the bigger, once players start making moves like this and integrating other companies, start looking at it as 
um, inevitable that that's what they need to do to be competitive. What's very interesting about this integration is it's not necessarily following classic logic. The deals that you cited made more sense from the perspective of, okay, we're two insurers, we make our business bigger. Of course, that didn't pass muster with antitrust regulators, judges, etc. And so that's why those didn't work out. And so what's happening now is we're seeing a lot of this vertical integration, and we don't know how these are going to work for shareholders necessarily. This Cigna Express deal is more of a classical. We've seen United Health has um, a PBM, so we know what that yeah. joint business model looks like. But when you think of the CVS deal, for example, retail and insurance, what does that look like? How does it benefit the end consumer? We don't know yet. So while mm. this is happening, and because there aren't that many dance partners left, like you say, then it's going to raise questions about how how well these deals are going to okay. affect shareholders longer term. Longer okay. term. Cynthia, thank you so much. I know it'll be a busy day. Cynthia Coons uh, with Bloomberg News and her work on pharmaceuticals uh, and the major drug companies uh, as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.